Alrighty, uh, good morning again. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point and uh, turn to the Gospel of John. So uh, towards the end of your Bible, uh, the beginning of your New Testament, you find the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So uh, that's where we're going to be. We will start in John chapter 6 and uh, make our way into John 10 and then make our way into John, uh, excuse me, 6, 8, and 10. So that's where we're going. Uh, if you don't have access to a Bible uh, your own or maybe the Bible in the pew back in front of you, there should, uh, most of our text should be up on the screen. So John chapter 6 is where I'd invite you to turn as we begin to look at uh, the first four of the I Am statements in the book of John, revealing both the prerequisites of our salvation and uh, Jesus' provision of our salvation. I trust that you're there, so let's pray and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you that we have the great privilege of looking into your word. Uh, Jesus, thank you that you inspired uh, this first disciple of yours, uh, your beloved disciple, uh, the disciple John, to record a very unique perspective on who you are in his gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you had him record these seven statements, these seven statements of who you are and these seven statements of what you want to do to provide uh, for our spiritual needs. They are great, and yet you are a great God and a great Savior. And so, Jesus, help us open our eyes that we may see uh, all of who you are and all of who you want to be for us. And it's in your name, the name of Jesus, our God, our Savior, our King, and our Lord, uh, that we pray it. And all of God's people said, Amen. So we're going to begin this morning by taking a look at what I call uh, the prerequisites of salvation. Now, we all know what a prerequisite is prerequisite is it's something that you have to do before you do something else, right? So when you go to college, uh, you have to, first of all, do your prerequisites before you get to your study or your major, right? It's the things that you have to do beforehand before you can do something else. Well, what we see here in the first two names of Jesus, the bread of life and the light of the world, Jesus is showing us the prerequisites for our own salvation. That is, he's showing us that we have a need for salvation, He's showing us that we have a need for him. And so we have to come to that point before we recognize that he is our savior, that he is our provider, that he can meet our spiritual needs. So a couple names that show us these prerequisites. The first one is found in John chapter 6, verse 35. Uh, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. The bread of life, that is Jesus, our satisfaction. This maybe is my favorite of the seven I am statements, and we'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, John chapter 6, starting in verse, actually we'll start in verse 32, and we'll go through verse 35. Let me just give you a a brief context before we get into this verse. Uh, As we come to John chapter 6, we have recorded Jesus feeding the 5,000 men. Actually, that was probably more like 10,000 people, right? So Jesus, uh, the day before, feeds a whole ton of people. And what does he feed them with, right? He takes fish and and bread, right? So he feeds them with fish, and he feeds them with bread. He goes uh, across the the sea to the other side with his disciples, and what we see recorded then in John chapter 6 is is the crowd who had their bellies full of fish and bread the day before come looking for Jesus. So why are they looking for Jesus? What do you think? Well, he gave them food, and he gave them bread, and so they are coming to look for Jesus, but they're coming to have their bellies full rather than to believe. And so Jesus rebukes them. He says, hey, listen, the only reason why you're coming to find me is because I gave you this bread. And so that sparks a conversation. And 
he says, you're coming to find food, but not to believe in me. And so the crowd asks him there in John 6, they say, we need a sign. We need a sign if we're going to believe that you're the Messiah. We need a sign if we are going to believe that you are the Son of God. And they said, just like Moses. So they think back in their history and they say, just like Moses provided us bread from heaven, remember manna that came from heaven, just like Moses provided bread, we need a sign so that we will believe. And so there in verse 32, Jesus responds. So let's start there in John 6, 32, and we'll go through verse 35. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Notice the contrast. The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, Sir, they say, always give us this bread. So they're not quite getting it, right? They say, we want this kind of bread, right? Verse 35, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the conversation continues. But here in verse 35, we see the first I am statement. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This reveals to us that Jesus is our satisfaction. He's saying just like physical bread satisfies a physical hunger, he alone as the bread that comes from heaven can satisfy our spiritual hunger, right? Uh, As one commentator by the name of Bloom, he says this, referring to Jesus, he says, he nourishes people spiritually and he satisfies the deep spiritual longing of their souls, right? And so at once, Uh, And at once he does this, what does Jesus say? He says, once I'm the bread of life for you, once I satisfy you spiritually, what does he say? He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry again, right? It will never happen again. So uh, just a quick poll. You can respond if you want. Uh, I will count myself among those who um, who love bread. So any bread lovers in the house, people just really love bread. Okay, yes. I'm glad I'm not alone. Uh, I'm a carb kind of guy, and for me, uh, I could at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, if there's a freshly baked loaf of bread, hot out of the oven, oh boy, that satisfies my spiritual, uh, my physical hunger, <laughs> my physical hunger and my spiritual hunger, it, it satisfies my physical hunger like none other, right? So what I like to do is I, I like to put some, some butter on it, and the butter just soaks into the bread, and uh, you know what else I like to do? I like to get honey and put honey on that bread, and it is yummy, right? It satisfies my physical hunger. What Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am the bread of life. I alone can satisfy your spiritual hunger. And once you come to me, once you taste and eat of me and experience that I am the bread of life, you won't ever be hungry again. So that's, that's kind of the thing with physical food, right? With physical bread, you eat it, and then what happens in about four or five hours? You get hungry again, right? So at, uh, for breakfast, we eat breakfast, and about four hours later, uh, we kind of get hungry again. And so we eat lunch, and then about four or five or six hours later, uh, we get hungry again. And so physical food doesn't eternally or perpetually satisfy, right? But what Jesus is saying, he said, when you, when you taste of me, the spiritual bread of life, you won't ever go hungry. You won't ever have 
those longings again. So I don't know if this is common in your household. Uh, maybe for those of you who have young kids like I do, it's not uncommon for us to wake up and have breakfast in the morning. Uh, we make a breakfast and we get the kids theirs first and they're sitting down and they eat and I'm, I'm maybe doing my breakfast or my wife's breakfast. And by the time that we sit down to eat our breakfast, the kids... Well, they're already done, right? They're off playing. And so my, my wife and I, on our days off, we have a leisurely breakfast. We enjoy conversation. And then we start to clean up and we do the dishes, right? And uh, almost every day off that I have, uh, by the time I'm done doing the dishes, guess what my kids are saying? Moms, what are they saying? I'm hungry, right? They come to me and they say, I'm hungry. And I said, you just ate. You know, I just fed you food. I'm hungry. Um, you know, that won't ever happen with the bread of life. That will never happen when you come to taste and know Jesus Christ personally. So I want to ask you a question. Are you spiritually satisfied? Have you encountered and tasted and seen that the bread of life, Jesus, is good? Have you tasted him? Have you gone to the place and, and known that you've tasted him? You're not spiritually hungry again. I think this is the most significant, maybe not the most significant, but for me personally, I'm drawn to this image of Jesus as our satisfaction. Because I can remember before I became a Christian. Uh, Some of you can't because you became a Christian at an early age. But I became a Christian when I was 15. And this idea of Jesus satisfying our spiritual hunger resonates with me because that's my story. I remember being spiritually hungry, although I wouldn't have articulated it that way then. I just remember being spiritually hungry. There was something that I wanted, something that I needed... But it didn't satisfy, and so I would look to be satisfied in, say, academics. I was pursuing valedictorian. I wanted to be valedictorian, right? Don't ask me if I, if I did. I'll tell you later, okay? I wanted to be valedictorian. I wanted to be the star <clears throat> sports player, right? So I worked, and I thought, well, if I just start on the basketball, basketball team, if I'm just the starting running back, if I'm just the valedictorian, if I, just, if I just date the prettiest girl in the high school, right, then I would have this longing in my heart satisfied. But what happened? Well, I think, I, hopefully, it's a, a common experience for all of you because, well, maybe I started the basketball game, but it just didn't meet my need. Maybe I did date the prettiest girl in the high school, and I did take her to prom, by the way. But it just didn't, not to brag or anything, but, uh, but it, it didn't do it, you know. It didn't meet my need. And I, I just, it was, it was a life full of searching until I came to know Jesus as the bread of life. And he satisfied this longing that can only be satisfied in him. So have you had that experience as Jesus, as your bread of life, your satisfaction? If not, we're going to give you an opportunity here at the end of the service to do that. So the first image that Jesus uses in John 6 is the bread of life. He's showing us that we have a spiritual hunger and that only he can meet it. But then there's another image, and it's the second I am statement, and it's found in John chapter 8. So if you're in your Bibles, turn just a little bit to the right to John chapter 8. There in verse 12, we see the second I am statement, and Jesus says that he is the light of the world. The light of the world. And here, Jesus is our illumination. He's our illumination as the light of the world. He's showing us that he needs to light up our life and reveal to us that we need him. Uh, I was going to show you a book 
Uh, it's one of my children's books, and I went searching through their bedroom after they were asleep. So I had my phone, my iPhone, and I was looking, I was using it as a light. I was looking through their books, trying to find this book, and I couldn't find it, so forgive me, but I'll describe it to you. Uh, it's a book, and it's called uh, Goodnight Gorilla. I don't know if you've heard of it or your kids. It's a wonderful book. Uh, the long and short of it is it's a story about a zookeeper. And the zookeeper is locking up all the animals for the night. But there's a pesky gorilla who follows him behind and snags the key and opens the, 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 the cages of all the animals that he just locked. And so essentially what happens is the, is the zookeeper, he's apparently very ignorant of all this, and he walks across the street to his home and there's a train of animals zoo animals that are following behind him. He gets ready, he walks in his bedroom, and there's a picture of all the animals going into his bedroom with him, uh, ducks and elephants and lions, and of course the pesky gorilla. And he uh, gets ready, he crawls in bed, and uh, the monkey, the gorilla, gets in bed with him, and he says good night to his wife. Good night, right? And uh, he shuts the light off, uh, and then his wife, uh, you know, wakes up and says, good night, honey. And uh, I'll describe the scene to you. Uh, there's two black pages. It's completely black. It's pitch. And what you have is all the animals saying good night to the wife. So good night, good night, good night, says the giraffe. Good night, says the elephant. Good night, says all the animals. Good night, good night, good night, good night, good night, good night, right? And the next scene is completely black, but there are a set of eyeballs. There's a set of eyeballs. So she's awake. She's awake in the darkness. And all she knows is that she said good night to her husband, but all the some, somebody or something said goodnight back to her, and she's puzzled. And so uh, my son, would call, he would say, let's read the eyeball story. That's what he called it. Let's read the eyeball story, because this prominent page of just the eyeballs. So what does she do? What do you think? She turns on the light, right? And she turns on the light, and she finds out that all of her husband's zoo animals are there uh, with her, and that there's a stinky gorilla also in bed with her, right? So what does she do? She takes them all back to the zoo, and she puts them up, and then she walks across uh, across back to her house, but guess who's following her? The pesky gorilla is following her and crawls in bed, and uh, the mouse who's with him says, good night, gorilla, and he says, good night. No, that's that's the story, right? That's how it goes. But as I think about this image of Jesus as the light of the world, our illumination, my mind goes back to this page. It's total darkness, right? It's total darkness, and all she sees, she wakes up, and all she knows is that something's not amiss in her. Something's amiss in her house, right? Something's not right. So she turns on the light to discover the situation. Similarly, Jesus is the light of the world. And what he means by that is that he illuminates us to the truth of our own spiritual situation. He turns on the light in our house, so to speak, to help us see that we have sin and that we have rebelled against him and that we are in need of saving. He turns on the light, so to speak, to reveal a household full of sin and rebellion and a lack of love for him. So it's in that context in John chapter 8 that Jesus says this. John chapter 8 verse 12. Jesus is speaking, and uh, it's the Feast of the Tabernacles. He has encountered much opposition. There are religious leaders who don't believe in him, and it's in that kind of hostile climate where he says these words, John 8, 12. When Jesus spoke to the people, he said this, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What he is saying to 
those who are rejecting him, is he's saying, I am the light. You are in darkness spiritually. You are in darkness spiritually. I've come to illuminate that truth so that you can turn towards the light, come towards the light and not away from the light. And me as the light, I can give you life. What you have now is less than life. It's not real spiritual life. It's like you're sleepwalking. I don't know if any of you sleepwalk or if any of you have children, maybe who sleepwalk. Uh, when I was a child, I, I was a sleepwalker. And uh, I probably told this story before, so I won't reiterate it. But there was one night that I walked all the way down to the stairs. I uh, unlocked the back door, and I walked out into a porch, our porch, and then I walked uh, onto a little pathway and up the steps to our swimming pool while I was sleepwalking. And uh, thankfully, my mother caught me and said, Trey, what are you doing? And your boxer is outside in the middle of the night. And she said that I told her, I'm going swimming. That makes sense, right? And she said, no, you're not. Go back to bed. And uh, I did. And I don't remember a lick of it at all. I was a sleepwalker. And that's kind of the thing about sleepwalking. Like, you're alive, obviously, and you're kind of awake. I mean, I could respond to her, but was I really aware of the situation? No, I I don't remember it. Uh, In a similar way, I think it's a good picture to humanity before we come to Christ. We are alive physically, but we are dead spiritually. We aren't completely aware of our need for Christ. And so Christ comes and he said, and he, he wants to turn on the light in our world to help us see that we have a need for him. So maybe that describes you. Maybe you're sleepwalking spiritually. Maybe you're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. Have you allowed Jesus to light up your life, so to speak, to illuminate the fact that you were born with a nature that is rebellious to him, with a heart that is hard towards him without love, and that you're separated with God? That's what Jesus was doing to the crowd. He's saying, listen, You've rejected me. I'm the light. You are in the darkness. Come to the light so that you may have life. Have you done that? Have you come to Jesus as the light of the world? In these first two names, Jesus has shown us the prerequisites for salvation. That is, we need to understand that there's a deep spiritual longing that we have that is unmet except for the person of Jesus. And he says, you need to recognize that you are dead. You're walking in darkness, and I'm the light, and you need to come to the light. He wants to show us our need for salvation, but not only does he show us our need, but he then shows us how he goes about meeting that need. He shows us the provision of salvation. So let's take a look then at two more of these names. Jump ahead in the Gospel of John to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Uh, specifically, we will look uh, starting at verse 7. There in John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus introduces his fourth, excuse me, his third I am statement. And he says, I am the gate. I am the gate. And it shows us that Jesus is our entrance. There in John chapter 10, I just want to give you kind of a bit of a context. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus introduces yet another image. The book of John is full of pictures, allegories, Uh, metaphors. In John 10, verses 1 through 6, Jesus introduces the chapter with an image of a flock of sheep. So think of sheep in your mind, right? He introduces the image of a flock of sheep that uh, is essentially in a pen. And what I mean by that is that the pens in those days were essentially a, a, a large circle with enclosed walls that had a single gate, So imagine that sheep in a circular pen that were enclosed. There's a single gate, and the gate would be guarded by a gatekeeper. And the gatekeeper's job, essentially, was to open the gate when the shepherd of the sheep would come. Now, oftentimes, they would be community pens. So there would be several flocks 
within the pen. Imagine that. And so several flocks, and then one shepherd would come, and he would come to the gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper would what? Open the door, let the shepherd in, and the shepherd would say, hey, I don't know what he would say. I'm just making this up. Hey, sheep. You know, maybe he'd whistle. Maybe he would have a specific call, but he would call his, his flock, and the, and the sheep would recognize that that was their call. That was their shepherd, and they would follow him. Not all the sheep, but, but just the sheep that were in his flock, and he would then lead them out to pasture. However, <clears throat> there were times when there would be imposter shepherds, people who had come posing as a shepherd, but they actually wanted to steal the sheep. They wanted to steal the sheep, right? This is the image that Jesus introduces in 1 through 6. And then starting in verse 7, he is going to liken himself to the gate of the pen. And then in verses 11 through 15, he's going to change the image and liken himself to the shepherd. So let's first look at verses 7 through 10, Jesus as the gate. Verse 7, Therefore, therefore Jesus said again, Verily, verily, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, a reference to the religious leaders in that day. Thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them, because the sheep recognize that it's not their shepherd. Verse 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be what? Saved. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the what? Full. And to have it to the full. And so in verses 7 through 10, Jesus likens himself to the gate. He is the entrance. Essentially, he is saying, I am making a new flock now. I'm making a new people of God called the church. And if anybody wants to be involved in the true people of God, if anybody wants to be a shepherd of, uh, excuse me, a sheep in God's sheepfold, then there's one way to become it. And what is that way? There's one way to get into this pen that holds the true flock of God. Just like there was one way in and out of the sheep pen. And who does Jesus say is that way? himself, right? He says, I am the gate. I, I allow the sheep to come into the flock of God. Uh, back when I was uh, younger, I grew up in a small town much like this, and uh, we would have a Halloween carnival every year. And my mom was a teacher, so she would, uh, she would really help with this. She would get it. She was very involved in it. Let's just put that. And so I was able to see how they built all of the games and the, and the festival booths and things like that. And there was one that essentially they, was like a, it was called Jailhouse, I think. And essentially what they would do, I think, if I remember, is they would make a, a pin. They would make a, a circular pin, and I think they would use some kind of animal pins. I don't know. I'm not into animals. But they would make a, a pin, and they would put walls so that you couldn't get under it, and they would make kind of a roof so that you couldn't climb over this pin. And uh, the point of it was you uh, would drag your friends, and you would throw them in this jail, right? And the only way the friend could get out of the jail was to pay a ticket or two, right? And uh, of course, so when you saw your friends kind of coming towards you, you knew to run because you didn't want to get stuck in this pen because there was only one way in and there was only one way out 
And the way in was free, but the way out cost you money, right? You had to pay to get out. Uh, in that pen, you didn't want to go in. You wanted to, to be out. But in this pen, in this pen that represents the pen, the, the, the pen of God, if you will, the, the place where God's sheep are, you want to go in, right? You want to be in, and the only way is through Jesus, who is our entrance. And so I want to ask you another question. Have you entered into God's sheepfold through the one gate? Through the one gate who is, pers- who is what is personal faith in Jesus? I think oftentimes nowadays, both in the church at large and in society at large, the idea of there being one way into to God, one way to heaven, that's not PC, right? We don't, that seems so, well, intolerant, doesn't it? It's just so, so intolerant, and yet Jesus uses this image, and he says, listen, there's one gate, and guess who it is? It's me. It's not through morality. It's not through church attendance. It's not through baptism. You don't become a part of the flock of God by those things, and it's not by death. What strikes me, I don't know, have you ever been to a funeral where the pastor has said, um, this person is now in hell, and they're not right with God. They've not trusted in Christ. I never have, and yet that is the reality. And I don't mean to joke. That is the reality for many, many people. In our society, we think death is the way to heaven. What does Jesus say? Is he the way to heaven? He, personal faith in him. It's not through morality. It's not through being good. It's not through church attendance. And it's not simply through dying. It's through personal faith. It's through seeing there is, the, there is heaven. There is uh, the way, the, the people of God. And Jesus is the gate. So have you entered personally through that gate? Or have you not? Finally, Jesus is not only our entrance into heaven, if you will, as the gate. But he moves then into verse uh, 11, uh, verses 11, 11 through 15, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. So not only is he the gate, but he is our good shepherd. He is our substitute. He is our substitute. The emphasis in these verses is that Jesus, as our good shepherd, unlike those who are simply hired hands, that is people who are hired shepherds, he's a personal shepherd. He cares for his sheep. He knows his sheep. They know him. And as a good shepherd, he's willing to even lay down his life for them. Let's read that. Let's continue reading in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. So he he shifts the image from from the gate to get in and out to, to the shepherd who then comes in and he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. But most amazingly, he is a wonderful shepherd. Let's see what he does. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. That's how you know that the shepherd loves the sheep is that he's willing to die for them. Verse 12, the hired hand, a reference to the religious leaders of that day that are false And I think to this day as well. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not know, does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. Verse 13, the man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But Jesus isn't like that, is he? What does he say in verse 14? I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me, just like in the image. The sheep would recognize their shepherd, and he would recognize them. And uh, history tells us that it's po- it could be that the shepherds would, would have individual names for their sheep. He would know them 
by name. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, what what does the good shepherd do, church? I lay down my life for the sheep. This image of Jesus as our good shepherd uh, is multifaceted. It's it's multi-layered, right? So as our good shepherd, he knows us personally. He knows the details of our life. He's shepherding us individually as a good shepherd would do that. And the reverse is true. The sheep know the shepherd personally. They recognize his voice, and he and he alone do they follow. But what's the emphasis? What's the emphasis here? The emphasis is that the good shepherd, as opposed to the hired hand, when trouble comes, what does he do? He fights, and he's even willing to do what? To die to provide for his sheep. It's an image of what Jesus would do for his sheep, both his original disciples and me and you. It's an image of the cross. It's an image that Jesus would be willing, as our good shepherd, to lay down his life to pay for the penalty, to pay for the sins of the sheep so that we might know him personally as our good shepherd, so that we might hear his voice and he might know us, right? And so I want to ask you a question. Can you say that you know Jesus personally like this? There's an intimacy to this image that those of us who are born again and know Christ can relate to. He's our good shepherd. We know him. It's a relationship. It's not religion and rules. It's a relationship with a real person who is our good shepherd, and he knows us. Do you know him that way? Christianity is about a personal relationship with Jesus as our good shepherd through faith in his life and in his death and in his resurrection that then causes us to know him and to follow him as our good shepherd. There's an old hymn that, uh, that I particularly enjoy. It's called In the Garden. You may be familiar with it. In that hymn, it's, a, I think, a, a helpful portrait of what it's like, a description of knowing Jesus as our Savior, as our personal good shepherd. Just a few lines read like this. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice that I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. The chorus goes like this. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and the joy that we share as we tarry there, what? None other has ever known, right? It goes on. He speaks, and the sound of his voice is so sweet that the birds hush their seeking, singing, and the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. It's a wonderful little hymn that points to the reality that for those of us who know Jesus, we know him personally. Can you say that, friend? I mean, is that true of you? Does that resonate with you that you know Jesus personally and that he, he knows you or is your version of Christianity simply just rules? Is it simply just going to church on Sunday mornings because that's what your wife wants you to do, or maybe it's best for the kids? What is, what is your Christianity? Is it rules? Is it law? Is it religion? Or is it a real, personal, living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ? We've seen the prerequisites of our salvation. Jesus, as our bread of life, shows us that we have a deep hunger that only he can satisfy. Jesus, as the light of the world, he illuminates us to that reality that we need him. But he also provides us 
with our salvation. He is the gate. Only we can go to God through him. He is the good shepherd. He is our substitute. He dies for our sins on the cross so that we can have a living, real, vital relationship with you. And so, with him. So what we're going to do now is we're going to pray. And uh, I'm going to offer a prayer for all of us during this Christmas time that Jesus would truly be our good shepherd, that it would be a real relationship. But if you are sitting here today and you would say, I have that deep sense of dissatisfaction and I've not had that met in Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you would say, I'm kind of sleepwalking spiritually and I've not, Jesus is not the light. He's not illuminated. I've just now realized that, that I'm separated from God, that I'm, I'm a rebel and I've sinned against him. And I just have come to realize that Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only way into the sheepfold, right? And that he is that because he dies for us. He's our good shepherd. And I want to know him really and personally. If that's you, then uh, we're going to pray. And pray with me here in just a moment. And uh, you can trust Jesus personally as your Savior and as your Lord. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your Son is so much for us. We thank you that he alone can satisfy our deepest needs our deepest longings, our deepest desires. As it has been said, it is true, there is a God-shaped hole, a vacuum in our hearts, and that only you through your son Jesus can fit there. Only, only you can satisfy us. We would ask that you would help us to come to you as the light and not run from you, that we would enter through the gate who is your son Jesus personally. And that we would recognize that he is our good shepherd who dies in our place. So if you're here today and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, you can repeat this prayer in your heart. It's a, it's a prayer of faith. There are no magic words here. But if you want to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus, then pray along with me uh, in your heart. Father, I come to you now recognizing that I am a sinner, recognizing that I do not know you and that your wrath is against me, and that I deserve death and hell and justice because I have rebelled against you and sinned against you, and I have lived for myself. I'm very grateful that your Son illuminates this truth. I want to be satisfied through your Son, Jesus. Thank you that your Son is the gate. Thank you that he is the only way to you, and I want to enter in your sheepfold through that gate because I trust in what he has done as our good, as my good shepherd. He died for me, for my sins, on my place so that I could have eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and become your sheep and hear your voice and know you. Thank you, God, for doing that. I place my faith and trust in your son, Jesus. Amen. Father, for the rest of us who uh, know your son, we can rejoice in these truths. And we look forward to next week as we find out that there are wonderful blessings and promises uh, that you have given us through your son, Jesus, uh, for those of us who know you, that we anticipate and that we are so grateful for. May this Christmas season, Father, may we believe in your son and may we have life in his name. And it's in his name that we all pray. And God's people said, amen. Listen this way, I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to read a blessing over us. Uh, The book of John, book of John ends this way. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may may have life in his name. May we believe this Christmas and have life in the name of Jesus. See you next week. Amen.